Um, uh, it's my privilege to preach this morning again, and I'm going to continue to share out of the book of Jude. So if you have your Bible on your phone, you're most welcome to open it now, or you can, um, oopsie, or the scriptures will come up as I go through this morning. But um, last week, I really tried to introduce this book to you and to say that uh, the reason that Jude wrote the book is summarized in verse 3 and 4, where he says this. He says, my friends, beloved, I was eager to write to you about this common, this great salvation that we have in Christ, but I felt it necessary to write to you to appeal to you to contend for faith, the faith that once and for all was delivered to the saints. And so we had a look at those introductory comments last week, um, and I said to you that it was we live in an age right now where each one of us needs to find courage to contend for faith. And that's what we're going to be looking at over the months that lie ahead. What does it mean to con lovingly contend for faith, to, uh, uh, about faith? Not to um, contentiously fight with people, but to lovingly contend for truth. That's what we want to look at as, as we go forward. And then the verse we're going to look at this morning uh, after making that introductory comment, Jude kind of unpacks it a little bit more, and he says this in verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So Jude never really identifies who these people are in any detail. He just he says certain people, certain men came into the church and began this false teaching. Um, and what they were trying to do was to change the character of the gospel and what it meant to live by faith through what they taught. And so you'll see as we go through the letter, there are little phrases where we begin to understand a little bit more about who these men were. So for example, verse 8 to 10 verse 12 to 13, verse 16, and verse 18, all describe a little bit more what these people believed and what they taught. And obviously, they were false teachers, and um, they started to deceive the early church. And I said to you that scholars think that possibly these people were Gnostics, and I will get to what Gnostics believed during the weeks that, that follow. And many of these things, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. I was just having a chat in the car the other day. And some of the things that we face in our, in our communities, our, our society right now, some of the things that people are holding to as beliefs are quite Gnostic. There's nothing new under the sun. That's what I, the, longer, <laughs> the longer I've led church, the more I've discovered this. These things are all connected. And way people, the way people have thought, um, things come round again in a different kind of shape or form. But essentially, it's, it's very similar ideas that get repackaged generation by generation. And so that should give us courage to stand as Christians and hold to truth as God has given us. So here are five little things I want to just introduce this morning out of this verse, verse 4. First of all, these people slipped in and unnoticed, and because they were unnoticed, that was the danger, all right? They didn't come into the church with a sign hanging around their neck saying, false teacher, did they? They slipped in. It says, in fact, it says they crept, crept in. It's like they came through the door unnoticed, and people thought they were one thing, and yet they were something completely different. And that's why I've tried to encourage you over the years in this church is that you learn the gospel 
for yourself. And you begin to understand for yourself truly what the gospel is. So that when any other thought, or can I just say this lovingly? The garbage that is available on the internet, and there's a lot of garbage on the internet. Don't believe everything that you read on the internet. Can I lovingly say that? I was just thinking about this. You know, even 20, 25 years ago, if you were going to try and say something, you would have to publish a book. And if you were going to publish a book, what would happen is you, when you, the publishers go through a whole process of checking your research, making sure that what you say is true, there's a whole process that you would go through to get a book published. What happens now? Any Tom, Dick, or Harry can just have an opinion about anything, dump it up onto the internet and be an influencer, and people believe what they write. My friends, if there's ever a time that we need to be sharp to know what truly is the gospel, it is now. The Dutch have this wonderful word, pru, pru, which means taste, that you can taste what is true. And uh, I read to also people that used to work with money. You remember when we had paper money? <laughs> and, the, and they would try and uh, find what was fraudulent. The people that actually were the best at seeing what was fraudulent in the notes, they trained people by touch to feel authentic money. And what, part of the way that they found out what was inauthentic is that it just felt different. And you and I have to trust the voice of our, the Holy Spirit in our lives when something just feels a little bit off and you don't know what it is, but there's this inward sense of, oh God, this just doesn't feel right. I can't quite put my finger on it right now. Can I ask you to begin more and more to trust that voice, the Holy Spirit's voice in your life? Mm, there's something not quite right here. Lord Jesus, help me to see what it is. And I want to put it to you, the more that you understand and live and know the true gospel of Jesus, the more you will be able to spot what is fake and inauthentic and prosperity gospel, etc., etc., etc. This is what James is try, uh, Jude is trying to get us to understand. So these people, the danger comes because they slip into the church unnoticed. Secondly, he says this, do you notice that these people have a destiny? He says they are destined for condemnation. And that is the destiny of everyone who teaches what is false and every leader that is an ungodly godly leader. They are marked out for condemnation. And it's here he just says it's enough to call them ungodly. In other words, they seem to be like God in one sense, but inwardly they do not represent God at all. You know, I've, I've seen over many years that you can fake it for a while, but after a number of years, what is truly on the inside begins to come out. And I have had people in my life as a Christian that have presented themselves as godly men. And over a period of time, it's become apparent that they're not a godly man. They are a wolf. And they've come into the church and deceived people and brought destruction. So, let's not be so impressed by the outward, all right? What did, what did um, God say? He says, actually, I look at the heart. I love this man, David, because of his heart. And uh, that's how we get to know. It's not the outward appearance. It's the inward reality of what is happening that we need to look out for. Thirdly, it says, um, 
uh, I want to just point this out. They might have been unnoticed by the church, but you know they, w- they were noticed by God. And isn't, isn't that a wonderful thing? God wasn't in heaven wringing his hands saying, oh, these people are teaching falsehood. They're going to deceive the church. And what am I going to do about this? He wasn't anxious like that. There's the certainty that in the end, truth is going to play out and these men will get their just desserts. And our responsibility as believers, as lovers of Jesus, is simply to know the truth, guard the truth in our heart and mind, and make sure that we are on the side of what is true. Fourthly, Jude says these men pervert the grace of God into sensuality, and there's a tragedy in these words for me. Because they did know something of the grace of God in the sense that the grace of God had drawn them. They had received something, but perhaps they had begun to acknowledge some things in their lives. But then it says they perverted the grace of God into an excuse for sensuality, their sensuality. In other words, they had experienced something of God's grace, but not that radical transforming grace that completely turns your life upside down. And you see everything differently. They hadn't experienced that. They had experienced something of God's grace, but not the full revelation of God's grace, so that they turn grace into sensuality. Now, I had a look at this word sensuality, and uh, in the sense it's used here is sin without shame. In other words, there's no conscience or decency that you just carry on in this this kind of lifestyle of sin. And it can be used in two ways. One, obviously, with sexual immorality. But there's another way that it can equally be used is that uh, sensuality can be brazen, anti-biblical teaching as well. It can also be used in that word. So, in other words, when the truth is denied, when the Bible is taught in an incorrect way, that's a kind of sensuality that we can also give ourselves over to. Or when you try and get the Bible to say things that it simply does not say. That's, that's what Jude is saying. He's kind of using it in both of these ways, and I think that becomes apparent as we go through the letter because as we go through the letter, we'll see that these certain people had both moral problems and they had doctrinal problems, and the two go hand in hand. It also just reminds me, as in I love the grace of God, there's always a danger when you preach the grace of God. There's a hidden danger. And the hidden danger is this, that people take what you're saying and they become licentious. And what does Paul say? Should I carry on sinning because of the grace of God? Surely not. There's a constraining kindness that comes into our lives when we truly understand the grace of God. And so, but that, that is the truth. When you preach grace, there's always a danger that people are going to say that you are licentious and you're giving people over to just doing whatever they want to do. But that's not true grace at all. It just shows the corruptness of the human heart. And fifthly, it says in this verse, it says, They deny the Lord God, the Lord Jesus, as Christ. Um, Simply, that means they refuse to accept Jesus is who he claimed to be. And that's why we think these people were Gnostics. Part of what uh, Gnostics did, the whole different factions of Gnosticism. But people denied the divinity of Christ. They just said, no, well, he's a good guy, great teacher, but he's not really the son of God. And so these are some of the early things that the early church had to face. Um, We're not told specifically how they denied the lordship of Jesus in their lives, but um, it was certainly through their living, their lifestyle, and certainly their doctrine, and 
probably both of these were true. So that's the point that Jude makes in verse 4. That's the main point. Now he gives three examples to illustrate the point that he's just made. So when you read verse 5 to 7, he makes it clear. He says, these guys are going to get judged by God, and I want to give you three examples from our history as Jewish people to show what that was. So he says this, I want to remind you, although you already know it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. It's interesting, eh? It says Jesus brought them out, and Jesus destroyed those that did not believe. There's this kind of teaching that goes around saying that, you know, the God of the Old Testament is vindictive. He's the one that destroyed people and killed people. But, you know, Jesus is the good guy. He never does that. Jesus is only full of grace and truth. Well, it's not quite what the Scripture says here. So what I want to talk to you about this morning is really hard for me to preach because it's about consequence. It's about judgment. That the Bible equally teaches about grace and it teaches about consequence of our decisions. And these things are illustrated this morning in how Jude speaks through these three examples. He says, you know about this, that the people were taken out of the land of Egypt and afterwards destroyed, Jesus destroyed those who did not believe. And the second example, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Second example, example of angels that disobeyed. Third example, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So when I first read this, it really surprised me that the first example that Jude gives, saying actually God is going to judge these false teachers and he's going to, they're going to, there's a penalty for them coming. The first example that he uses is the nation of Israel. And he says quite clearly, I want to remind you, you know about this already. You know about the fact that Jesus brought you out of Egypt. But you also, I want to remind you that not everyone went into the promised land and Jesus destroyed those that did not believe. Yeah? So he's saying, I'm not telling you anything new. But I want you to apply this in your lives and remember this example for your own lives. Um, and ideally, I mean, all of us should, should be familiar with these examples. We should understand what they're saying. And uh, I read this. Spurgeon said this, um, great preacher. He said, as for the root facts, the fundamental doctrines, the primary truths of Scripture, we must from day to day insist upon them, and we must never say everybody knows them. For alas, everybody forgets them. <laughs> so isn't that true? We need to remind ourselves constantly of these foundational things that are taught to us and handed down to us. And so Jude, Jude is reminding them of Numbers 14. Now, do you remember Numbers 14? It speaks about God delivering the people out of Egypt in, in bondage to slavery. And they come out of Egypt and they come to this place called Kadesh Barnea on the threshold of the promised land. Remember, they wandered around for 40 years. They're about to go into the, the promised land. But in the, at this point in Kadesh Barnea, the people, at the end of the day, they, f they don't believe by faith. They've refused to trust God. Remember, they go through a whole process of moaning and saying, oh, if only we were back in Egypt and, you know, the cloves and the garlic and the food were so much better there and all we've got is this manna from heaven. 
Just got this daily provision from God. That's all we've got. <laughs> and they moan. And there's a whole process that they go through. And uh, even Moses, Moses, who's been the amazing deliverer, he doesn't end up going into the promised land. Why not? Because God says to him, Moses, speak to the rock so the water can come out. And remember, Moses always had a problem with anger, didn't he? He murdered the, the Egyptian right at the beginning. And there's something of that root problem still in his life. And out of frustration, he doesn't speak to the rock. He smacks the rock out of frustration. Still that little bit of anger. And what does God say? Moses, you're the greatest. I love you. I've seen you face to face. The Bible speaks of Moses in a way that it doesn't speak of many people. And on that basis, because of that very small little thing at the end, God says, my son, you can't go in. And he doesn't. And so all of that inheritance that God had for him, he doesn't end up being the person to lead the people into the full inheritance. Another man, Joshua, gets that responsibility. And so the people had known the miraculous deliverance at the Red Sea. They had heard the very voice of God. They had received his daily care. But at the end of the day, they didn't believe God by faith. And that caused them not to move into the inheritance that God and the place of rest that God had for them. And then I've said this already, but um, Jude reminds the people that actually the vast majority, in fact, the entire adult generation didn't go into the promised land. They died in the desert. And um, there's this very powerful scripture in, in Psalm 95 where it says this. It's describing the Lord's reaction to the people. It says, for 40 years... I hated that generation and said, they are people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways and therefore I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest. And there's this warning in Jude that is quite clear for all of us. You know, the people of Israel were God's chosen nation. They started out well. He delivered them out of slavery. They had many blessings along the way. They heard his voice. They experienced his miraculous provision. But at the end of the day, they did not endure and they stopped believing by faith. And because they stopped believing, they didn't inherit the full promise that God had for them. And so there are these two, two little lessons that this example can teach us about these false teachers. It, uh, first of all, it ensures that God is going to makes clear that God will certainly judge. Um, and I could put it this way, that Judah is saying these men might have started out well in their walk with the Lord like the children of Israel, but they have not continued in faith, and so the inheritance is not going to be guaranteed. And it's a, it's, a, it's a warning to us also as believers that we need to persevere and continue to trust the voice of the Spirit, respond in faith as we walk with the Lord so that we can inherit all that He has for us here on earth. The final test of Christianity is endurance. That's why Paul says it's like a marathon. It's the final test. You believe by faith. God transforms you by faith. But you have to keep on walking, believing, and trusting Him day by day. That that future grace is available to you. The same grace that saved you, the same grace that's sustaining you, is the future grace that will deliver you into all the promises that God has for you. Amen. That's what we have to do. Keep on working, walking and trust the Lord. And now... Jude, Jude is quite famous for um, 
controversial examples. <laughs> right? And he has, another, he has a controversial example. Because the second example Jude um, gives is judgment on angelic beings. And he says this in verse 6, The angels who do not stay with their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Um, so I'm trying to, I would like to try and understand what possibly Jude could mean by this. So the phrase says, the angels who do not stay with their own position of authority. Well, the first question is, who were these angels? And there's only two times, there's only two examples in the Scripture where it speaks of angels sinning. And here they are. The first we see in Isaiah 14, verse 12, which describes Lucifer as the morning star that falls from heaven. And the Jewish tradition is that Lucifer was the most beautiful angel. He was the worship leader in heaven. And he rebelled against God and took a third of, a third of the angels with him because he wanted to be like God. That is what the, the tradition is. And so here in Isaiah, uh, this describes Lucifer, the morning star, falling from heaven. And we read also in Revelation of that same thing, of a third of the angels being uh, thrown down from heaven in Revelation 12, verse 4. That's the one example of where we, we read about angels sinning. The only other example is found in Genesis chapter 6, in the first two verses, where there's this rather strange verse, which has been quite controversial in how people have interpreted it. But it says this. It says, when, the man, when man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and so they took wives as they chose. And now you can see why it's controversial, because the debate is, who were those sons of God? And some people have held the view that those sons of God were actually angelic beings that intermarried and produced offspring with human women. And God took exception to that. And so that's the, that's the debate. Were these people angelic beings, or were they simply, is that another way of saying that they were humans that followed God? Well, I think Jude gives us a clue because Jude definitely says that these angels did not stay in their designated, the designated position of authority but left their proper place and left their proper dwelling. And then it connects, connects um, with this sense of sexual sin that it describes in Genesis 6 verse 2. That's why I think he is talking about angelic beings. And then he connects it in verse 7. Do you notice he connects it and he says, that's why I think it is to do with sexual sin, because it says in verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires. So there seems to be this kind of natural, this unnatural thing that happened, and God brings judgment to that, and he says these, these angels are going to be locked away in darkness until the final day of judgment where they will be judged. That's the second example that Jude uses to say to these, the early church, these guys that have been deceiving you, their judgment is as certain as the angels waiting for that final judgment on that day. It's very strong language. It's very, very, that's why you can see I'm saying it's difficult for me to preach, all right? It's very powerful, very strong language. And so there's certain things that we can learn from this example, and I just want to give you 
very, two very simple things. You know, the angels had an amazing status, didn't they? They were found in the presence of God. They were those leading worship in the presence of God. And yet, because of their rebellion against God, the Scripture says they are destined for condemnation on that final day. And so, I think Jude is trying to say out of that, that don't rest on your, your, your laurels in terms of your position or what spiritual blessings you might have known in your life. Why? Because the angels had all those blessings, and yet they, they were deceived, and condemnation awaits them. And so, again, I want to just emphasize that for all of us, we need to be those that are walking by the Spirit, hearing His voice, keeping our hearts soft, so that we can enjoy the full inheritance that He has for us. You see, the past experiences of the angels didn't guarantee, didn't guarantee their future inheritance, and the same is true for us. We have to keep walking by faith and being on our guard and walking by the Spirit. And then the third example is this really, again, controversial example. Uh, verse 7, it says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, when you read about uh, these two cities in uh, Genesis 13, they were really prosperous places. They were privileged places. In fact, um, uh, in verse 10 of Genesis 13, it says they were like the garden of the Lord. In other words, it was a very fruitful place to be, Sodom and Gomorrah. The, the fertile land, great, great farming, lots of, of prosperity. And the sexual sin of, of Sodom and Gomorrah is graphically described in Genesis 19. And because there are children in here, all I'm going to say is this, is that there's attempted rape that is, is uh, uh, attempted by the men of Sodom against the angels that are being hosted by Lot. And then equally as terrible as that, Lot offers his two virgin daughters to these men in the place of the angels. That, that is the story. It is absolutely horrific on every level, this kind of sexual sin that happens. It's unthinkable to us, but that's exactly what it describes. And so it's very easy to see that and, and to, to understand a very basic thing from that. But also, Ezekiel 16 says this, which I find fascinating in verse 49. It's speaking about Sodom, and it says this. Ezekiel says this. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom, she and her daughters. They had pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, and did nothing to aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Wow. So this is my point. The sexual sin is easy to see, isn't it? Uh, we can all say, oh, yeah, that's, that's, we can see that. Ezekiel says, the real problem with Sodom is they were so prosperous, they were fat, they were overfed, they were haughty, they had all the blessing, material blessing in the world, and they didn't love the poor, and they didn't give a damn about the poor. That's what he says is the real problem. I find that incredibly, incredibly challenging, don't you? We live in this prosperous community in the West, and for us it's easy to kind of rest on our, uh, in our blessings that we have 
and uh, become sort of desensitized to other people's needs. I don't know if you've been reading about um, what's been happening in India right now with um, COVID. I was just reading, uh, we've got friends in India. My friend Tony is, is sick with COVID right now in the north of India. But I was just reading yesterday in, in, in Delhi, there's so many bodies at the moment, they've, they've just got, they've got funeral pyres burning all the time because they can't cope with the amount of people dying in Delhi right now. 360,000 people a day getting uh, confirmed as having COVID. It's such an incredible, incredible thing happening. Let us not become desensitized to other things that are happening in the world because right now we're kind of on an upward curve and doing quite well. Amen? Let's, let's keep our prayers and our hearts open to the suffering that is happening in the rest of the world. And so I want to encourage you, let this, you know, I find, I've said this, I'm going to say it again. I really, I've said to Helen, I'm going to, this is difficult for me to preach. This is not easy. These are not easy portions because, you know, <laughs> I love God's grace and His kindness and His mercy. And that's what I want to preach. I was, I was in town yesterday and this guy was preaching on the street. And he said, Jesus said, you shall not commit adultery. And he was like, in St. Albans by the clock tower. He was doing this whole thing. And he had the Ten Commandments. and saying, we're all failing. We're all failing. And no one was listening. So I went up to him and I said, I said, my friend, I want to encourage you to start with the grace of God and the kindness of God. And he said, it's the same thing. I said, it's, absol it's absolutely not the same thing. They start at a different place. It's God's kindness and love that leads people to repentance. And you telling them that they are failing in every area of their life is not going to draw anyone into the kingdom of God. What it's going to do is just confirm to these people that God doesn't love them. The very opposite of what you're trying to say. So let this truth inform us that we make wise decisions, that we live a, a sexually pure lives, that we choose to, with our wealth and the blessings that we have, be generous and kind and bless people. Finally, um, Jude, Jude concludes this example with this undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Uh, and this is, the, this is uh, one of the pictures of God's judgment in the Scripture. You remember the first, the first picture with uh, Noah is water that just floods the whole of the known world, and uh, Noah has to build an ark. Well, the second picture in the, in the Bible that's common is the image of fire that is, is a, a purifier and destroys things completely. And that's the image here. Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed by fire, whatever that was, a comet coming down from earth or volcano or whatever. It destroyed the whole city and it burnt it so there was nothing left. And this is the image in Revelation 2 of, of what God is going to do in the end. You know, the angels, the demons that rebelled are going to be thrown into the lake of fire and will be destroyed forever. And there's pictures of cities in, Re in Revelation, and it says the smoke goes up from the city. There's this picture of God destroying and purifying. And so, basically, Judah's saying, in the same way that judgment is certain for these false teachers, it's not only like Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed by fire, but there's eternal uh, wiping out that's going to happen. 
destroyed. And I am convinced that sin is going to be destroyed one day, completely. I live for that day, that final day when Jesus will come and we will know him and we'll go and be with him and he will say, enough is enough. No sin, no disease, no sickness, no crying. Every tear will be wiped away. That day will come. You can be sure of that. That day will come and Jesus will come back and take us to be with himself, his glorious bride, and sin will be no more gone. What a glorious day that will be. Until then, let's live with pure hearts. Let's walk by the voice of the Spirit. Let's hear His voice in our lives so that we can enjoy the full inheritance that He has for us here on earth and also one day in heaven. Amen? God bless you guys. Let me finish there. I want to pray for you. Uh, Jesus, I just want to thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is truth. Thank you that your word transforms us and informs us and guides us and transforms our heart. And Lord, I just want to thank you for uh, this portion that I was able to unpack this morning. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would help us to guard our own hearts, that we would know what is true, that we wouldn't be deceived by what seems to be clever, that we'd so know the voice of your Spirit and we'd so be in tune to your Word in our hearts and our lives that we would be able to spot what is not your gospel, that we would live with purity before you, that we would have care and compassion for the poor and the broken, and that your Word would continue to inform our lives, that we truly would know something of that inheritance that you have for us on earth, and one day they would enjoy that full inheritance that you have for us in heaven. And so, Lord, I just want to speak your blessing on this church community. Thank you for every family. Thank you for those that were able to visit today. We just trust, Lord, for that ongoing encouragement by the power of your Spirit deep in our hearts. Lord, help us to live for you, completely for you in this in this generation in which we live. Help us to pass on the authentic gospel to those that are coming after us. Not to try and change it in any way, but to respond as faithful disciples and to pass it on to those that are coming after us. And so we bless you for who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone says, Amen.